Hello and welcome to the BU Body Empowerment Unified Podcast. I'm Hannah, the president. And I'm Diana, the podcast producer, and we represent the Body Image and Eating Disorder Awareness Club, also known as BDAC. Started by high school students and centered in Los Angeles, California by BDAC, the Body Image and Eating Disorder Awareness Club. This podcast focuses on telling stories from those that have overcome eating disorders or have or are struggling with body image and self-love. Through this podcast, BDAC aims to spread positivity, kindness, share tips and tricks for different methods of self-care, and overall raise awareness about the importance of self-image and mental health. In today's episode, we will be discussing body politics with guest speaker Erica Dvorak a sociology major at UC Davis, whose interests involve breaking down the intersectionality of feminism and body liberation, and how it relates to social constructs, sexuality, race, and fatness. In this episode, one of our topics discusses eating disorders and content for mature audiences that may be triggering. Listening discretion is advised. Body liberation is defined as the freedom from oppression that designates certain bodies as better, more beautiful, more worthy, or more desirable than others. It involves tearing down systems and prejudices that deny individuals equal acceptance and full participation in life. Often, society determines the worth of individuals based on appearance and fails miserably to give all bodies equal value and worth. The media, capitalism, white supremacy, diet culture, and others alike also participate in the problem of commercializing unattainable beauty standards making one's natural self difficult to embrace. This unhealthy mindset takes a heavy toll on the mental health of many individuals. Body liberation has become a continuation of the fat acceptance movement, which stems from the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Over the years, activists, speakers, influencers, and more have used their voices to become trailblazers for body positivity culture. Today, there are many ways to get involved in body liberation, such as joining organizations, speaking out, bringing awareness on eating disorders, and even challenging your own thoughts and attitudes about the definition of a beautiful and worthy body. In today's episode, we had the opportunity to speak with Erica Dvorak, who identifies as a fat, disabled, white, and queer cis woman. Erica is a current sociology graduate student who has received her BA at Washington State University and MA in sociology from UC Davis as she continues to earn her PhD. Erica's current research interests include understanding sexuality, fatness, and race, and how they connect within body liberation. Erica's research stems from her own personal experiences and political stance as she strives to be oriented towards prison and police abolition, fat positivity, disability rights, and anti-racism, viewing mainstream societal notions of beauty as white supremacist, heteropatriarchal, and cis-sexist constructs. Erica continues her work on learning more about redefining attraction and beauty to be more liberatory rather than oppressive. As a person who is disabled, Erica previously worked as a service dog handler and trainer, which has helped her deepen her relationship and understanding of her body. As a teacher's assistant, Erica also empowers and inspires her students to learn self-care and acceptance. We sat down with Erica to hear her story and current sociology research interests, as well as her many intersectionalizing identities within sexuality, fatness, and race. 
describe your research as your work towards PhD in sociology and how it sparked your interest in body liberation and defying social constructs of beauty. Yeah, so it kind of went in the other direction. So it's not it's not that my research got me interested in body liberation. It's like that body liberation got me interested in my research topic. So one of the wonderful things about sociology is that we kind of get to choose whatever interests us to study. Um, we're not really limited by the program that we're in or the professors that we have access to or anything like that. Like we can sort of just follow our heart <laughs> for what is most exciting to us, what's most interesting to us. Um, so yeah, I mean, I really just started from things that impact me. My research is very much me search at this point, uh, which is really common for a lot of sociologists. We end up studying ourselves because that's like what we have experience with. That's what we're like constantly having to grapple with and trying to figure out. So if we can talk to more people that share our identities, it can help us figure out who we are, um, which I find is like a really strong pattern within a lot of sociologists. Um, but yeah, basically I started out really focusing on gender um, and like sexual violence. Those were like my two main focuses in undergrad. Um, and then I kind of broadened out to be more focused on race and bodies in general. Um, and that broadening of my focus was mostly the result of taking some really interesting courses in undergrad. I took one that was focused on um, the prison industrial complex. And that kind of opened my eyes to the systemic racism that we have in this country and how much bigger it is than just like skin color um, and how, how bodily race is, I guess. Um, that doesn't sound good to say. How embodied race is there. That's the grammar. Uh, <laughs> so I basically like, I took the scholarship that I was already focusing on with gender and I made it more broad to focus on more axes of oppression, marginalization, and privilege um, so that I could kind of get a more interesting look at things, I guess, if that makes sense. So that's, that's a really broad overlook, but what I'm focused on right now is um, I'm looking at the interaction between fatness and whiteness. Um, so there is a strong connection in our society between um, anti-Blackness and anti-fatness, and a lot of scholars are actually arguing that they are the same thing, um, or that anti-fatness is rooted in anti-Blackness. Um, so it's a really interesting intersection of privilege and marginalization to be a fat white woman, which is my identity, um, because we're both like experiencing the oppression of being fat women and experiencing the privilege of being white women. And white women are one of the only marginalized groups that can use their marginalization as a form of empowerment, actually, um, by harnessing the white patriarchy, the white heterosis patriarchy. That's a lot of words, but like that's, <laughs> I find myself when I'm talking about social justice stuff, like just adding prefixes onto words over and over again. Um, but yeah, that's, um, that's kind of where my research is at right now. That's like the main project I'm working on is just like exploring sexuality specifically from the perspective of whiteness and, um, and fatness. It's so cool how sociology allows you to study what you're interested in. So yeah. our next question is, how do you perceive social media's impact towards the body positive movement? Is it more negative or positive? Um, this is kind of a hard question 
to like answer really well, I think, because there's so many answers to it. My experience personally has been that social media has been really positive for me to learn more about body liberation. It's where I got a lot of my um, education in anti-racism, in um, fat positive politics, um, in queer studies and um, anti-capitalism, <laughs> all of the things that are really important to me. I really got from Instagram question mark. I know a lot of people don't have a really great association between like social justice issues and Instagram, but that is where I got most of my education. Funnily enough, I'm like in grad school, but I took that education and then I went and took classes with it. Um, and it gave me like actually a pretty strong background to engage with the literature once I actually got into graduate seminars about race and bodies and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I know that my experience is definitely not typical. A lot of people when they're on Instagram, especially in high school, are like really experiencing a lot of body shame, body dysmorphia, having to do with how um, people are editing their pictures super intensely and um, posing just so, and then it makes people feel really inadequate. And that's an experience that is super valid and a lot of people have. Um, I think part of why my experience has been mostly positive with social media is because I didn't get really involved in it until I was in college. Um, I had a Facebook account in high school, but like I didn't, <laughs> I like posted bad memes. Um, <laughs> I didn't actually use it very much. Um, and then once I was in college, that's when I I actually like made an Instagram account. And at that point I was a little bit older, a little bit more able to like carefully choose who I was following and who I wasn't following based on how people made me feel and how I felt when I engaged with their content, um, which led me down a path of following a lot of people that influenced me for the positive and made me feel good about myself and helped me figure out who I wanted to be more so rather than kind of sending me down a tunnel of body image issues and whatnot. So that's a complicated answer, but yes and no, it's good and bad. <laughs> I really like how you use social media for a positive impact rather than a negative, but how do you challenge stereotypes and fat phobic um, society as you proudly reclaim the word fat in your identity? Yeah, um, so for me, being fat positive, being oriented towards body liberation is really rooted in anti-capitalism in anti-racism, um, in disability rights, um, as like kind of the main three <laughs> things that I'm that I'm focused around. Oh, and feminism, obviously. Um, it's also interconnected. I think being um, being social justice oriented, being a leftist is like so intersectional um, by nature. It's really hard to separate out what these ideas mean because they all interact together. These axes of privilege and oppression are also tangled and we like to for studying purposes separate them out to be like this is fatness this is race this is gender blah, 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 so that people can really like get into the nitty-gritty of each of those things but that's not actually how we experience them and that's not actually how like they exist in the real world um so for me it's really important to have anti-racism super central to my work and have um, disability rights super central to my work because they are so connected. Um, so for example, capitalism, hate it. 
Um, <laughs> definitely a commie. Um, but part of why capitalism can be so harmful when you're looking at um, fat liberation, when you're looking at body liberation, when you're looking at disability rights um, and anti-racism is because capitalism is rooted in the idea that people's value is based off what they can produce for society. And especially if you're looking at disability rights, that means disabled people have less value than abled people. And that's incredibly problematic, super eugenicist. And that's why this country has such a problem, such a history of eugenics, because we are so focused on capitalism. And it's really hard to see people who are disabled as human beings when the whole logic that underpins our entire society is based on what people can produce um, for that society wealth-wise. Um, and that interacts with fatness and bodies, right? Because fatness can be disabling. And a lot of the times um, people have the stereotype of fat people that we are lazy, that we aren't contributing to society, that we're just like leeches on society. And that is part of the ableism existing in capitalism. It's the idea that like, oh no, what if this person is too fat to produce wealth? Then they don't have value. Um, so that is connected to ableism in that way. Um, and race, same thing. We have so connected people's races to their ability to produce wealth for society. And we've used capitalism and wealth to oppress people who are not white, particularly black people um, for so long and we continue to do so. So it's all connected. Um, and I think that's like the biggest thing that I've learned in the last couple of years. Cause I used to be like super duper white feminist um, and I didn't understand all of these things that are super important to my politics today and therefore my research because my research is so political. Um, and I really credit some of the classes I've taken and a lot of the Instagram people that I follow. Um, Erica Hart is one of the big ones. Um, I love her, her work. Um, that has helped me really figure out how to create work that is a lot more intersectional and a lot more focused on people who have axes of oppression that don't necessarily line up with my own. It's really interesting how things like capitalism and body liberation and racism are all connected. This question for you is, growing up, were you always confident about your body and expressing your many identities or was it a learning process? It was definitely a learning process. Um, <laughs> when I was a freshman in high school, I actually had um, a pretty severe case of anorexia. Um, and that was very challenging, obviously. Um, I was not eating. I was kind of a zombie in life. I like barely remember that part in my life because I was just so out of it. I wasn't like, I was all glazed over all the time. Um, I was super depressed. Um, eating disorders, not glamorous turns out super, not fun. Um, as I'm sure you guys know, you made a whole club about it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, basically I had a pretty severe eating disorder and coming out of that, I started to realize that like, I super didn't like who I was when I was really deep in it because I was not only judging myself constantly for not fitting into these standards of thinness that had been set up for me by society, but I was also judging other people really harshly. I thought everybody was fat. I thought everybody was lazy. I thought fat and lazy were the same thing. Um, and I thought that nobody was trying as hard or as good as I was because I was consistently losing weight. I must be better than everyone else. Um, so it was like a really complicated 
relationship with my eating disorder where it was like kind of narcissistic and also um, obviously self-hating, um, a bit of an addiction. It's, it's a lot of things put together. Um, and coming out of it, it was really important for me to orient myself towards um, body liberation. I'm just going to like keep coming back to that one because that is honestly what saved me. Um, because it's really hard to starve yourself when you know and you believe really seriously in your heart that you have value no matter what size you are and that everybody else has value no matter what size they are, whether they're bigger than you or smaller than you. Because um, so much of my eating disorder was rooted in the idea that fat people had less value than thin people. Um, I love how you mentioned everyone has value no matter what. It's really inspirational. As a person in this in the disabled community and a service dog uh, trainer, can you tell us more about your work and the important physical, emotional, and mental support of a service pet? Yes. Yeah. So first, just like a little bit of information about service animals, because a lot of people don't know a lot about them. Um, service animals are dogs or miniature horses, actually. Both are protected under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, trained to perform tasks that mitigate their handler's disabilities. Um, and there's a lot of misunderstandings about um, service animals and ESAs. Emotional support animals are kind of a different thing. They don't have to be trained to perform any sort of task, although some of them are. Um, they don't have to be trained really at all. They're just any pet and there's no restrictions on species. So you can have an ESA that's a bunny or a snake. It doesn't have to be necessarily um, a dog or, um, or a miniature horse. Um, and ESAs are legally protected in your home. So your, your landlord cannot deny you an emotional support animal. They can't charge you pet rent for that. Um, and service animals are protected in your home, on airplanes, and in public, um, and sometimes in the workplace. Um, we're obsessed with capitalism in this country, as you all know. Um, so we give the most rights we possibly can to employers, which means that employers have final say on whether or not your service animal is allowed in your workplace. Um, there are some guidelines um, that they generally have to follow, but it's really expensive to fight it if they break the law. Um, so that's kind of a quick little primer on service animals um, and emotional support animals and all of that jazz. Um, so my disabilities are ADHD and PTSD. And right now I'm having a little bit of long COVID, which is kind of disabling too. Um, and a lot of people don't realize that ADHD and PTSD can be disabilities or that a service dog can actually help for those things. Um, so the tasks that are really useful for me are um, behavior interruption. If I do like self-harm stuff, I will like pick at my skin or something like that. Um, my service dog was trained to interrupt that behavior. She would like bonk my hands away from each other so that I couldn't do it anymore. Um, and blocking. So if we were like at the supermarket or something, she would sit behind me. Um, so that people couldn't sneak up behind me, which made me feel a lot more safe and comfortable in public. Um, grounding stuff, she would kind of boop my hand with her snoot when we were walking down the street so that I would just like always have this little reminder like, hey, you're here, you're on this planet, you're in your body. It's a lot harder to get caught dissociating when you're always having that reminder. 
Um, and then she also did a little bit of guide work for me because with both ADHD and PTSD, I'll get disoriented sometimes. I'll like lose my car in grocery store parking lots quite frequently or like take her on a walk and then be like, I don't know where I'm at. <laughs> and then I need help getting home. Uh, so she also would do a little bit of that. Um, those are the main tasks that she did for me, but honestly, there's more, there's a lot. Um, but basically having a service dog really impacted my relationship with my body because first it like allowed me to stop fighting my body so much because, um, my disabilities were being mitigated. I had a dog that could help me be more active in the world and get out and do things, um, in a way that I couldn't do as much without a service dog. Um, and so that it helped me have a better relationship with my body, um, because I wasn't resenting it as much. Um, and that's a really common experience. I think for a lot of people with service dogs is once you have that medical equipment in the form of an animal, you really can access the world so much better. And it makes it easier to not be at war with your own self. Um, and then the other thing that I found really wonderful about having a service animal is when you're out and about, people get like so excited <laughs> to see your animal. And it's really helpful, especially if you have like any level of anxiety. Some people with anxiety find it really stressful to have that much attention um, on them. And so I always tell people that want a service dog for anxiety purposes, that it's like really important to think about how that would make you feel if people were always looking at you um, and if that wouldn't be helpful. But for me, for the way my anxiety, um, my PTSD specifically, um, exists in my body and manifests, it is actually really helpful to have people always being like, hi, and like very friendly and kind and, um, super nice to me <laughs> because there's this like golden retriever next to me. Um, and it's really handy that they like usually interact with the dog before they interact with me. Um, so I don't have to always be like on my A game, prepared to interact with people, ready to talk. Um, because, I just have to like exist with my dog and people will come up to me and start interacting with me, whether I want to or not. <laughs> and it's like good to push me out of my comfort zone. So I experienced that as a positive. Um, a lot of service dog handlers don't experience that as a positive. It's kind of different for different people. Um, but that was really wonderful for me. I definitely relate to how I, um, I can get anxiety from having the attention on me. And it's really cool how your service dog helped with that. Our next question for you is, what do you wish was better understood about people with disabilities and what can able-bodied people do to be allies? Um, so there's two main things that I think are like really important for abled people to understand about being disabled. Um, the first is that we're just people. We're not special or different or wild or crazy. Like, I mean, some of us are, but so is everybody else. Um, and we, we make friends, we fall in love, we have sex. That's, <laughs> that's something that people always forget. Like we love to pretend that disabled people are sexless and that's like not true. Disabled people are very sexy. Um, so that's important is that like, we're just regular humans um, existing in the world, just like able-bodied people. We just exist a little bit differently. Um, and then the other thing that I think is super important to remember is that everybody is only temporarily abled eventually everybody will experience disability, whether it's just temporarily when they twist an ankle or get in a car accident or lifelong disability when they um, experience long COVID or get in a car accident that 
produces a lifelong disability. There's a lot of reasons why people develop disabilities and become disabled and everybody will become disabled if they don't die first. Um, so it's really important to uh, for everybody to be invested in disability rights because everybody's gonna have to deal with the fact that this country hates disabled people at one point or another. So it's really important to be prepared to take part in that movement and um, be invested in the rights of disabled people. Um, if only for your own sake, honestly. <laughs> um, I think a lot of abled people are convinced that they just are able-bodied and they will be forever um, because the logic of our culture relies on that. If people really knew that they weren't guaranteed their healthy, active body and lifestyle for the rest of their life, then um, it would be pretty hard to treat disabled people the way that our society does. Um, so I think dismantling that is really important. Um, and then as far as allyship, yeah, um, the biggest thing right now is wearing a mask um, with the pandemic going on and everything because um, disabled people are disproportionately likely to have adverse effects from this virus, um, whether it's hospitalization and death or serious long COVID um, that they experience as a result of having the virus. Um, and so many people in this country right now really want to just like get on with their lives, not wear a mask, just go to parties and go to Europe and have a great time because it's summer. And I get that, but um, disabled people have been really stuck in their homes for years at this point. And we're having to make really careful decisions every day about whether it's safe to go to the grocery store, whether it's safe to see our loved ones. Um, and I think abled people oftentimes forget that that is the experience that people are having um, and that it's not just a case of like, do you wanna go out and have fun? It's a case of like, what are the consequences of that? Um, and how can you do that in a way that keeps the most people safe possible? Yeah, I agree with you when you said uh, we should be supportive and understanding with other people around us. Who are the people in or your communities that have helped you through your journey and from their support? How do you av help advocate and uplift others? Um, let's see. The people in my community that have really helped me, um, I've been really lucky to make some incredible friends who are fat, who are disabled, um, who are communists, <laughs> who are always pushing me toward the direction that I wanna go. Um, so I'm obviously very focused on social justice issues. So it's really important for me to have relationships in my life that are also focused on those things. Um, and they aren't gonna let me get away with problematic things. So if I say something that causes harm to a community, all of my friends are people who would say, hey, like, have you thought about the impacts of that statement? Like, have you considered this, this, and this? They're not going to be like, hey, you're racist, because like, that's not helpful. Um, but they'll, they'll help me figure out what I'm doing wrong and how I can, how I can better interact with the world so that I'm not doing the harm that I would otherwise be doing. Because as a person of many privileges, I'm white, um, I'm from a wealthy background. Um, I'm in graduate school. I have a lot of power in our society, despite my um, the ways in which I'm marginalized. Um, and that means that I'm kind of naturally predisposed to having harmful takes, to having harmful understandings of the world. Um, I have white supremacy embedded in me, just like everybody else. Um, 
and it's particularly harmful within the body of a white woman. Um, so it's really important for me to have friends that are going to call me out on it and have friends that are going to help me figure out how to do better when I need to do better. Um, so yeah, that's a long answer to the question, but I'm very grateful to the friends that I have in my life. So the biggest thing I do right now, I don't really consider myself an activist because I'm not like actively on the ground doing things very much. Um, mostly what I do is teach. I'm um, a teaching assistant um, at UC Davis, which is obviously how I got hooked up with this whole thing. Um, Emily was uh, one of my students a bit ago. Um, and yeah, the main thing that I do as a TA is um, I love to take classes where I get to teach discussion sections because I get to have that like interaction with students every week and I get to make sure that they are getting the message from me, if no one else, that they are people, that they have value in the world, um, that their bodies and their health and their mental wellness is the most important, more important than any grade and more important than proving to me or to the professor that they are smart or capable or hardworking. Um, so I hand out extensions like candy um, and <laughs> I remind people to rest and I do my communist propaganda in all of my classes. I don't know if my professors that I TA for always appreciate it, but I do. Um, and I just like, really focus on making sure that whenever I have the opportunity to discuss uh, to discuss these issues in society, um, whether it be anti-fatness or anti-blackness um, or ableism or um, sexism, whatever comes up, um, I take that opportunity and I get on my little soapbox. And a lot of the times students are willing to engage with that and they have a lot of important things to say. It's really inspiring how you tell your students that they're also humans and you encourage them to take care of themselves. I think that's really nice. Thank you. I try. I find that a lot of students are really shocked by it when I'm like, hey, you're a person. Maybe you should like eat and sleep and take a rest. They're like, what? <laughs> from an instructor, from a TA, you're telling me that I should rest? Um, so it, it's really important for me to be that voice because a lot of people aren't getting that from the other people that they're interacting with in academia. I totally feel like just amazed by that because definitely school is like one of the most stressful things like on top of anxiety and then people like my sister telling me like I, when she was a freshman last year how you have to think about obviously your grades and like studying but then also taking care of yourself when you're off to college. So I think it's we get lost in so much of like our goals and our work that we forget that we are people and that we need to function and have fun and love ourselves. So that's great. That, like you're always like being like the reminder for that. I think it's great having like a teacher like kind of ally for that. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, for me, my like internalized capitalism had such a, a role that it played in my eating disorder when I was in high school. It had a lot to do with like needing to be the best and needing to get all A's and needing to just be perfect and contribute to society and make it in life or whatever that means. Um, and so kind of dismantling that had so much to do with like being the person I am today as far as like my um, political orientation um, and my just like ability to exist in the world because I was completely non-functional when I wasn't eating. You can't do shit when you can't eat. Um, so it's, yeah, it's just, it's, it's so central to my politics that like people are people first and they need to take care of themselves. Um, 
and that academia can be so toxic and so harmful and people will really get stuck in the rat race because they're taught that their whole entire value is what they can produce for this system. Um, that's just not true. So you've talked a lot about your experiences as a TA, your work in sociology, and then your experience within finding yourself and your high school experience with eating disorder. But then you also, today, as you, I've seen you, like you're a very more confident person about yourself. I, I really appreciate that too, trying to stay authentic and also self-aware when you said that you're friends call you out on things that's that's amazing but as a person with so many identities that have shaped you as you are today what is some advice that you could share with others especially us as youth um, who are trying to discover ourselves and trying to stay true to who we want to be um yeah I think the biggest thing is finding community um it's really important to really be able to check in with yourself um, when you're spending time with people, after you're spending time with people, and think about how you feel after that experience. Do people make you feel better about yourself? Do the people you're following on Instagram make you feel better about yourself? Um, or do they make you feel worse? Do you like who you are around the people that you have in your life? Um, and really be prepared to set some boundaries where it's not healthy. Um, and just because it's not healthy doesn't mean that person is bad or um, fundamentally harmful. It could be that they're like triggering something that has more to do with you than it does to them. And like, that's okay too. It's something to work through. Um, but it's just really important, I think, to, to be very cognizant of how you're feeling with the people that you're interacting with and who is actually healthy for you to be around versus less healthy to be around and set those boundaries where you need to. Um, because you really do become like the people that you spend the most time with. So if you're spending time with people who you don't like and who you don't like who you are around them, then it's going to be really hard for you to figure out who you want to be and become closer to that person. Definitely. Your influences and then also like <laughs> staying out of those toxic relationships, right? Yes. Yeah. If someone's harming you, that's not good. Get out of there. <laughs> and sometimes it's really hard to even realize that someone's harming you, right? Like you'll just be living your life and you'll be like, this is super not toxic. And then suddenly you'll turn around and you're like, oh, this person has been doing harm to me this whole time and I didn't even realize it. And like, that's an experience that I think is really common. A lot of us have it with friendships, with um, romantic and sexual relationships, with mentors. Um, and it's important to be prepared for that feeling and recognize it in yourself and then like make the choices you need to make to keep yourself safe once you realize that that's the situation that you're in. I think that's just like perfect because that's what we really want to do as a club here. We want to have like bring a positive influence to other students and then also just show them like we're all in this together. I mean, when we when we do these podcast episodes and we get to listen and hear stories like yours we I think we we start to realize more like how we're not so alone and like how everyone experiences these anxieties and this feelings of like maybe not fitting in or like not feeling comfortable so I think it's we're just so glad you're here because it gives us like an assurance you know that everything's gonna be okay This episode was brought to you by BDAC and produced by Diana Shadaiva and Hannah Kwok. 
We'd like to thank our guest speaker, Erica Dwarak, for sharing her story with us, as well as host Jocelyn Yee and Allison Wan. We hope you enjoyed this special episode and can't wait for you to listen to more. Don't forget to follow us at TCHS BDAC, that's BDAC spelled B-I-E-D-A-C, on Instagram, where you can view our club activities, posts, and contact information. If you would like to be featured in a future episode, please reach out to us through our email, bdacclub at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to be you.